I realize that this can't really happen, but work with me. If Jesus Christ were to come back to earth and spend three or four hours with his disciples, be it here in Shoto or somewhere else, what do you think he might say? Just think about it. If Jesus were to come back for three or four hours, if he had a three or four hour window, that is the title of tonight's sermon, a three hour window, but if Jesus come back for a three or four hour window to speak to his disciples, what do you think he'd talk about? What do you think he'd emphasize? What do you think he might focus on as he spoke? Those important things that he had to squeeze into a three or four hour window. Suppose he talked about baptism or maybe the one church. Think he talked about the state of the union, the mess in America? I doubt it. Or would he talk and teach about something else? Something, if Jesus had that, that time frame and he just had to get across those things that were most important in that three or four hour window, what would he talk about? probably most of us would say, well, there's absolutely no way we can know. And you're right. There's no way we can know. Not with absolute certainty. But here's the thing. Years ago, and even not so long ago, we used to have those little wristbands that said, what was WWJD? What would Jesus do? And the whole point of those was that when we get into a certain situation to remind us, okay, what would Jesus do? So I'm kind of reminding us, what would Jesus do if he had that three or four hour window? What do you think he might do? Because we know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. Jesus doesn't change. So we can look at a time when he had a three or four hour window and he had to get across the most important things that he wanted to leave with his disciples. Maybe, just maybe, those are the things he would talk to us about fact is, we know exactly what Jesus did in a certain circumstance. We know exactly what Jesus did in a three or four hour window, in a several hour window, talked to his disciples about. It was so important, so critical, so crucial that he had to get it across to them because he only had a short time. That message that he had during that three or four hour window is in John chapters 13 through 17. Please turn there with me tonight. John, chapters 13 through 17, contain a message that Jesus, just before his arrest and his crucifixion, had to get across to those disciples, those, those last-minute instructions, as it were, when he was so short on time, and he knew he had to leave them with the most important stuff. I want to point out three things tonight that thread their way through this text, that Jesus just had to get them to understand. And I believe that if Jesus were to come back, maybe these are the exact same things that he would talk to us about because Jesus doesn't change and he knows what's important. He knows what is most crucial for us as human beings to do and to get and to understand. John 13 and verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the 
He loved them to the very end. Now, the first message that we see, the predominant message that we see in John 13 through 17, he just had to get across to these disciples. The message that was so important that he stressed was love. That he expressed love, not just talked about it. Jesus didn't just talk about things. Jesus talked about them, taught them, and then practiced them. He expressed love in an unforgettable fashion. He didn't just love them. As I said, he loved them to the end. If you knew that you only had 12 to 16 hours left to live, 12 to 16 hours, somewhere in that vicinity, if Jesus knew that his time, his hour had come, it was right there, it was on the doorstep, he knew. If you had 12 to 16 hours left to live, who would you spend it with? With the church, i.e. the disciples in this case? Would you spend it with your physical family? Would you spend it alone and angry because it just didn't seem fair that this was going to happen in this short amount of time? Would you spend that 12 to 16 hours maybe in prayer to God? Jesus Christ, knowing that his time here was down to hours, spent his time with his disciples, what we would call today the church. I realize the church wasn't established then, but he spent it with the disciples. He didn't just spend it with them. He spent it with them serving, teaching, and exemplifying what real, sincere, godly love is and does. That's what he spent that time with them doing. Teaching them by example what real, not, not the sham that some people call love today, but real, selfless, committed, I'll give my life for you love is. Let me ask this question. How often do some of us maybe choose at times to neglect opportunities to serve, to fellowships, to teach, to show love and support to our brethren in the face of a much less reason, a less than life and death reason? Yeah, I truly believe that if Jesus could come back and share in a three or four hour window, that's, that, that's such a critical message that one of the things he would convey is most important to his disciples is the message that they love one another more than they ever have before. That we truly love, sincerely work, and diligently serve one another. Even, even, here's the thing, even those brethren... Even those brethren who might have not treated us right, working, loving, and serving those brethren who maybe have betrayed our trust, broken our heart, berated us, or even cursed us, because that's exactly what Jesus did. <coughs> Verses 2 through 11, Jesus did that. And supper being ended, devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but you'll know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Now, and I stress that because I don't believe Peter sat there and said, Well, you'll never wash my feet. That wasn't Peter's, that, that wasn't Peter. If you think that was Peter, read the rest of the four gospel accounts about Peter. I can see Peter, you shall never wash my feet. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Jesus said to him, he who is faith needs only to wash his feet, but it's completely clean. I'm sorry. Peter said, verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and the head. Peter's all in, isn't he? Either way, whatever Peter does, it's all the way. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. When Jesus says not all of you, Jesus knew what they were going to do. Jesus knew the personalities of those whose feet he was washing. And when we stop to think about washing feet, and I realize that, that some churches today on occasion, some denominations today on occasion <coughs> wash feet and this sort of thing, but we've got to understand that when Jesus washed your feet, it wasn't the situation that we have today. They didn't slide off a $200 pair of boots to have their feet washed. They didn't slide off a $600 pair of lady shoes to have their feet washed. They didn't walk in on carpet out of $50,000 automobiles across parking lots to get to where they were. Do we understand that in first century Jerusalem, as they herded the animals through the streets, as they herded the camels and, and the sheep, and, and as people walked through the muddy streets, that these animals left behind things? Do we understand that? Do we understand that people also would, they didn't have indoor plumbing, and so sometimes they would empty basins from overnight in the streets. And so when Jesus came down to wash their feet, it was not the experience that it would be today were we to wash one another's feet. Their feet were dirty, and they stunk, quite likely, because of what they had walked through. He washed the feet of Peter. Peter, who would deny him later that evening passionately. Peter would not only deny him, Peter would passionately disagree with him. Jesus would say, all of you will betray me this night. And Peter said, oh no, Lord, even if they all do, I won't. Peter was going to argue and fight with Jesus. Then he was going to betray him. With a curse. But Jesus still washed his feet. Judas who in his anger and greed later that very evening would betray Jesus to death. Jesus washed his feet. And the rest of those he loved and served, who would later that very evening desert and deny him instead of defending him and supporting him. Let me ask you a question. Is there maybe somebody in the church you have a problem with? Maybe somebody in the church who over the years has said things that have really gotten under your skin. Maybe they've said things that have really hurt. Maybe they've gone so far as to betray your trust to break your heart. Jesus said, the kind of love I have washes the feet of that person. Then Jesus said this in verses 12 through 17. When he washed their feet, taking his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the beginning of what Jesus just had to get across to them. This is the beginning of that message in that three or four hour window. That message of love that was most important for him to get across. And so Jesus did. But you see, he didn't stop there with this message of love. He didn't stop even with washing their feet. The word love, loves, and loved combined, those three terms, occur 28 times in these five chapters. 28 times in these five chapters is the word love in some form brought up. For example, in John 13, very familiar passage, verses 33, 4, and 5, look what it says. Jesus said, little children, I'll be with you a little while longer. He only had a few hours and he knew that. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Do you think for a minute that Peter or John or any of those apostles ever forgot that night what Jesus did with that basin and that water? Would you forget if the Lord and Savior washed your feet? They never forgot it, I'm sure. And Jesus, that's exactly what he was trying to do. He said, you've got to do what I've done for you. By this all men will know you, my disciples, that have love for one another. See, they were going to go through one of the worst times of their lives, and they not only needed God, they needed each other. They needed the love of one another to support them through what was going to be one of the darkest times in their entire lives. In John 14, verses 15 through 31, Jesus defines what love for God is, and that's obedience. And then look over with me in chapter 15, beginning at verse 22. One more bit about love, the first of the three that Jesus had to get across in that short time. John 15. Look over there, beginning in verse 12. 15 and verse 12. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. See, he keeps going back, but he's got to get this across to them. Greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You're my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Jesus just keeps going back to it. In that short, several hour window. Number two, a second common thread or theme that Jesus shared during that final few hours window with his disciples that night was assurance. Had to get across assurance. The word assurance actually never occurs in the text. But boy, there's a lot of assurance in the text, even though the word isn't there. Begins with that in chapter 14, one of the most beautiful passages on assurance in the entire New Testament, in my humble opinion. He knew. He knew what they were facing. He knew most of them were going to die martyrs' deaths. 
He knew that they were going to lock themselves behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. He knew that everything that they had thought was going to happen for the last three and a half years in this earthly kingdom wasn't, and they didn't get it. And he knew the struggles they were going to have. He knew that Thomas was going to have to see him. He understood their whole world was going to come apart in the next few hours. Everything they had hoped and believed in and trusted in was going to just, just go down the tubes. And he knew that. So he said, let not your hearts go. Don't be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. See, they were going to see him die. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I just I love I love the way Jesus he, he looks at them, I'm sure, as, as friends. He said that they're friends, and he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. You can trust me, is the implication. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will. Come again. No matter what they saw, no matter what they experienced, no matter the heartache, the pain, the whole world falling apart, Jesus said, look, trust me. I'm going to heaven, and I will come back, and I will get you. You can count on it. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He continues with so much assurance, and I just want to read that because look at the assurance beginning at verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would also have known my Father. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And, and Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Philip said, look, just show us God, and that's all we need. Look at the assurance from Jesus. Verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. For the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Look at the assurance. Look at verse 15. More assurance. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. And I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you another helper, and he'll abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Is that assuring? She said, I'm not going to leave you through all this by yourself. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'll come to you. What incredible assurance. Part of blessed assurance, that song we sing, is knowing that God is able and that God keeps his promises. That God is fully able to deliver on all of his promises. That not one of them is going to fail no matter what. Not one. As it stands tonight, I intend to preach a sermon next Sunday morning entitled, No, Not One. Because not one good word of God's promise has ever failed. Ever. What incredible <coughs> assurance. Look at the assurance reiterated in John 14, verses 28 through 31. Look at this. Jesus said, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. John 14, 28. 
If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Jesus said, I'm letting you know ahead of time so you'll understand I am who I claim to be. He just keeps assuring them over and over and over. He said, look, you can trust me. When these things happen to you, think back and remember, I told you, you, you can trust me to do what I said I was going to do, and I'm proving it by telling you ahead of time what's going to happen. Look at the assurance in John 17, verses 1 through 5. Look at the assurance reiterated again. As Jesus gets ready to pray that night, it says in John 17, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus said, if you've known me, you've known the Father. And now he tells, he, he prays to God in, in their hearing. And he said, that's what eternal life is, knowing God and knowing him. He says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you've given me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He said, I'm coming back and have that glory again. But, but it doesn't stop there. In his assuring his disciples, Jesus goes on at the end of this prayer. And he talks about in verse 24 how... He wants them to know this same thing. He says, I have declared them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Jesus just wanted them assured. We don't go through what they went through, but we all have our struggles. We have our crosses to bear. We have our hurts. We have unknown futures. Jesus, in that three-hour window, wanted them to have, number one, a love for each other like he had loved them, number two, an assurance that his death was not going to be the end. It was only going to be the beginning of something far more beautiful for them, and all they had to do was trust him. He said, I'll come back. I'll come back and get you. He said, where I am, there you may be also. Don't, don't, don't fret. I'll be back. And I'll take you with me so that you can be where I am. Another aspect of the assurance that Jesus knew was of utmost importance to stress to his disciples that evening was the fact that through the worst possible, imaginable problem, and make no bones about it, they would come. He wanted them to know they didn't have to stress. They didn't have to fret. They didn't have to worry. They didn't have to doubt him. They didn't have to fear. But they could have his brand of unshakable peace because of his unbreakable promise and unmistakable presence. Look in John 14, verse 27. You'll see some of this reflected. In John 14, 27, these, these beautiful themes just wind their way through this evening. In John 14, verse 27, he said, Peace, I leave with you. What do you mean, peace? Peace in the middle of our world falling apart and the Jews want to kill us and the Romans want to kill us and dying a martyr's death. That's exactly what I'm talking about. 
Jesus, I believe, would tell them. He says, peace, I leave with you. My peace. You see, Jesus had a peace that night, even though he was about to go through the cross. I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. In other words, my peace won't stop. You can have it. I'll keep giving as long as you'll keep taking. You can always have access to it. Let not your heart be troubled. Hmm, where have we read that before? John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Do you see how he keeps going back to this? You think about the background of that night. He would let them know again in John 16, 32 and 3. Again, this peace that they could have, this assurance in the midst of their darkness. He says in verse 32 and 3, Indeed, the hour is coming, and it's now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and, and you leave me alone. Yet not, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. What did that imply to them? That implied to them that when everybody in the, in the church, in your family, when everybody, and when everybody walks away because you're in this terrible place going through this terrible thing, you're not alone. God says, I'll be through with you. Jesus was setting the example here for that assurance. Jesus had that assurance. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Jesus wasn't trying to shortcut it, circumvent it, go around it, find a loophole. He said, it's going to be tough. You're going to have tribulation. He didn't say you might. He didn't say you may. He said, you're going to. You are going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. There's nothing the world can throw at you that I cannot overpower. Nothing. And so our third and infinitely important element that Jesus would stress during this three-hour window, having such a short time to really try to get across to his disciples those things that were most important, is joy. Joy. Folks, the reason that Jesus wanted to share joy with them and get that point across, and it was such a vital point, should be so incredibly obvious to us based on what we have talked about already. We, as his disciples, so often get sidetracked, and we let the world steal our joy. I mean, their world was about to cave in, but even in the midst of a quote-unquote normal day, I don't know what a normal day is, but again, work with me. In the context of a normal day, sometimes we get so sidetracked with so many other things and worries and fretting, we let the world take our joy. Our joy is there. Jesus has this incredible, infinite amount of joy that is ours as long as we access it, but sometimes people don't steal our joy. We just give it away. We let the cares of the world get in there and just, just level us. And Jesus wants them to know. He said, no, no, no. You're going to have trouble. But I have overcome the world. I have this joy. Listen, if Jesus Christ going to the cross in a few hours, going through that, that crucifixion, going through scourging, you know the story, going through everything he was about to have, said, hey, I want you to have my joy. I got joy. Even in the face of this. And if those disciples who were about to go through everything they were about to go through, and we, we know many of those things, if they could, based on their master's love and assurance and peace, despite the worst that the world was going to throw at them, if they could still be filled with joy, then you and I have no excuse not to take Jesus' message of love and assurance and joy with us. Take it to heart, 
take it to work, take it to school, take it wherever we go tomorrow. And look at that message of joy, John 15. Look with me in verses 10 and following, 10 and 11. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. All we've got to do is follow Jesus and, and walk in the light of his truth and we'll live in his love. What a beautiful promise. He said, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see, Jesus' joy wasn't some surface thing. It wasn't something that was made up or some, some fantasy in his own mind. He said, look, keep in God's word, you will abide in God's love. And that will be the source of your joy. He said, that's what I've done. That's what that passage indicates to us right there. And then he says in verse 11, the reason he's told him that, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus said, I want your joy to be full. I got it to give you. Will you take it and keep it? Look at it again in chapter 16, verses 16 and following. We see this joy again. In John 16, 16 and following, he says, a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Some of his disciples said among themselves, what's this that he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. And he said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you'll not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Most assuredly, verily, verily, whatever your virgin says, most assuredly, Jesus said, you can, you can take this to heart and to the grave. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice, and you'll be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, I realize that what he's talking about here is when he is crucified and he goes through all of that, and, and then after three days he's resurrected and comes back to them. But listen, we can have that same joy. Look what he says. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. And I realize, again, he's talking about a specific context to them, but this applies by extension to us. We're going to have some sorrow. You now have sorrow. But he says, I'll see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. If we come face to face with Jesus, not in a physical way, but if we come to a full understanding of who Jesus is, can he turn our difficulties into joy? Can he? Can he give us a joy that nobody can take from us if we don't allow them to? Absolutely. That's the point of the text. Sometimes we just surrender. And we need to stop. That's not the plan God has for us. Your joy no one will take from you. Verse 22. I want us to look in chapter 17 as well, one more time, as we talk about joy. Jesus, in his prayer, verses 13 through 17, says this. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, he's praying to God, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Fulfilled. Filled to the fullest. Filled to the overflowing. That's what that means. 
Well, how is that possible? Well, Jesus says, I have given them your word. We should find joy in the promises of God in his word. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We should find joy, assurance, peace in the promises of God. That's God's desire for us. That's what God wants us to have. That's what God wants you to walk out of this building with tonight. If Jesus could come back and only had three or four hours to share with us, his disciples, those things that were most important for us to know, those things that we needed to know and do the most, what do you think his priority would be? What would Jesus share with us? Because Jesus Christ does not change. Because Jesus Christ has the same priorities as he always has. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe that if he only had a few hours to get across those most important things to his disciples in any age, they would be these four things. Love and serve one another even as I have loved and served you. Number two, love and trust God enough to do what God said no matter what. Number three, rest assured and count on the fact that I am going back to heaven to prepare a place for you, and I will come back again and get you. I won't forget you. And number four, let those three things fill you with peace and joy every day, no matter what comes your way. Because you are mine. That is the beautiful message in those few hours that he shared with his disciples before he departed. So I ask you tonight, are you his? Are you his? You know, if I go out and I want something, I have to pay a price for it. If I'm willing to pay the price for it, and get it in exchange, then it becomes mine, and I bought it, and it belongs to me. Jesus came down and paid a price. He paid the price for all of your sins. The only difference in this case is, is that when he extends that purchase price, which he did on Calvary, we as human beings with a free will choice, we get to say whether or not we want to belong to him. We want to accept that price and let ourselves become his children. That only happens. When we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, when we're willing to confess Him, when we're willing to repent of our sins, when we're not repent of our sins, when we're willing to repent, repent means change our mind, which of course will make us turn to God and stop committing those sins. And we have to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the only way. That's, that's where the transaction takes place. That's where our sins are washed away. Acts 22 and 16. That's where... Our sins are forgiven, Acts 2 and verse 38. That's where we say to Jesus, 
You paid the price for my sin. I want to belong to you. I accept your gift on my behalf. Given to Satan, as it were, to bail me out of eternity in hell. Some beautiful promises in John 13 through 17. Jesus wants those who belong to him to take them with him always. If you don't belong to him tonight and you'd like to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you need the prayers of the church, please make your way down the center aisle as we stand and sing.